Hello and welcome to Underscore, the podcast from Asa Allen, featuring leading experts in economics and public policy. I'm your host and CEO of Asa Allen, Paul Hislop. And we're joined here today by my colleague, Owen Kelp, to discuss the Australian government's recent commitment to achieving net zero emissions by 2050. Owen has been advising clients across government and business on energy and climate change related issues for more than 20 years. He's a well-respected expert on these matters and has recently published an insight piece covering the topic. Owen, how are you? It's great to have you on the show. I'm well, thanks, Paul. How are you? I'm well too, thanks, Owen. Uh, Owen, I thought I might just start by asking you to maybe go through a little bit where our greenhouse gases come from and how um, we might be dealing with them over the next 30 years to get to zero emissions. Yeah, sure. Um, I guess when we talk about greenhouse gas emissions, I mean, it's a rather complex topic. Look, we report greenhouse gas emissions in accordance with the United Nations framework, uh, and that breaks emissions down into various components. Uh, and so the key ones are uh, electricity, stationary energy, transport, and then you've got other ones like fugitives, which is the emissions relating to the production and transport of fuels, uh, agriculture and agricultural processes, industrial processes, waste, and the final category that the UN uses is land use and land use change and forestry. So all up, Australia's emissions currently are around about 500 million tonnes of CO2 equivalent. And so for the listeners that aren't familiar with uh, the, the metrics we use in measurements, so CO2 equivalents, basically, there are a number of greenhouse gases, the primary one being CO2, which uh, arises from burning of fossil fuels and to a lesser extent, some land clearing. There are some other more minor gases as well, such as methane, which is CH4, uh, nitrous oxide, and some other fluorinated gases, which such things like refrigerants and other industrial processes. So in essence, each of those has a certain global warming potential. And when we measure emissions, we bring everything back to an equivalent uh, global warming potential of CO2. So we, we talk in terms of CO2 equivalents. So as I mentioned, Australia ran about 500 million tonnes per annum currently, and that's you know, fallen by around 20% uh, over the last 16 years or so. So for Australia, we're somewhat unique around the world. We are a relatively energy intensive economy and we do have a relatively high uh, emissions profile per capita. Due to our natural resource endowments, uh, we do rely quite heavily on coal-fired uh, electricity generation. And so electricity does account for around about a third of those emissions uh, of the 500 million tonnes. And Alan, what's the, uh, just to give the context, if electricity is about a third, what's the sort of other breakdown roughly? Because I think it's, it's probably electricity, stationary energy and vehicles, which is the, the large chunks, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. That's right. So stationary energy is probably around 20%. Uh, transport, a little bit less than that, maybe about 18%. Yes. So those three combined to be, what, 65 70% of our emissions? Yeah, that's right. That's right. That's the, the, by far the largest component. And, 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 land use, um, and, land, and land use clearing and forestry, 
It's a, it's a little bit controversial, isn't it? Because, um, I mean, I, I remember back to the times of the Kyoto negotiations. There was even a question of whether we should include that. And the reason I raise that is if, if you look at our emissions reductions uh, since 2005, which is the benchmark we're currently using, it appears that most of our emissions have come from, from that sector. And there was even a question whether we should even include that um, in, in the accounting. Yeah, yeah, certainly some controversial accounting of LULUCF, which is the acronym for it. And, you know, its inclusion in, as part of the Kyoto Protocol, which was agreed back in 1997, that was one of the controversial uh, clauses that was included and certainly allowed Australia to meet uh, its commitments under the Kyoto period. It, it's currently a sink uh, for Australia. Um, so currently we, it basically reduces our emission footprint by around 24, 25 million tonnes. So and, that, an, that, and, that and that comes basically from saying we're just not going to clear that land anymore. Yeah, that's right. So, well, it's, it's not so much that, it's, it's more reforestation of land that results in it being a sink. So the, to the extent we're planting uh, forests and, and uh, uh, the like, we're actually abating carbon from the atmosphere because those, those plants basically soak up CO2 from the atmosphere and store it within, their, within themselves. Yeah, I, I actually think, uh, I mean, you're right, there is a lot of reforestry going on, but, I mean, there are, there's now quite a lot of land being brought up um, literally to sit idle and, if you like, naturally grow forests. So that I don't think they're actually necessarily even reforesting, but they're, they're um, allowing uh, the natural growth to come back. For example, um, I know out in west of Queensland where you've got a lot of mulga country, there's a lot of activity buying up some of those farms and the, and the mulga grows pretty fast um, and, and it's going to be a, a natural carbon sink. So I mean, yeah. obviously at some point there's going to be a trade-off between you know, holding that land vacant, if you like, and, and, and the loss of um, agricultural production associated with that. But, I mean, I suppose we'll let the market sort that out through the value of those carbon prices. Yeah, yeah, that's right. There's certainly a tension there, and that'll play out over time. Yeah. I mean, the, the big issue is, to, or one of the big issues, and if this comes out in the plan, it's got a very high reliance on technology. And, by the way, I, I don't think that's necessarily a, a wrong way of thinking about it. And I think in your article, you uh, sort of agree with that too, that the answer to all this is technology, whatever that may be. We sort of know that we've got some technologies in the electricity sector. We know that we can move to electric vehicles or possibly hydrogen-powered vehicles. That's another option. We, some of the stationary energy, we can, we can probably displace with either hydrogen if, if we can make that work economically or possibly electrification. But there are some sectors of the economy, the, the LNG sector, for example, with its, I think it's, it's mainly comes from um, fugitive emissions, I think, doesn't it? The, the LNG sector. Yeah, it does. And then agriculture, uh, some of the things like uh, coke manufacturing, concrete manufacturing or cement manufacturing, they've got natural releases of uh, greenhouse gases. And unless you stop making cement, you're probably going to still have those greenhouse gas emissions. How, do you, how is technology going to help dealing with them? This is the key challenge, I suppose. And, you know, the, the plan that you referred to is the government's plan, you know, as part of our commitment to net zero by 2050. Uh, it's released a report and basically looks at a vision for Australia's uh, greenhouse gas emissions and how they might change over time to, to 2050. You, you're right. There are some relatively easy wins 
uh, and obvious solutions for us. As you say, and you know, the electricity sector is core, uh, a core component to a lot of those solutions. You know, reducing emissions in you know a current electricity system is is one thing, but then as we electrify, you know, stationary energy, as we electrify transport, you know, we we're basically shifting that emission footprint across into electricity. But you're right, there are some really difficult sectors uh, which are going to be really challenging to achieve abatement. Industrial processes that require high heat, uh, for example, you know, we might see a role for hydrogen in those sort of roles, in those sort of applications. There are others which, as you say, are difficult uh, and there are no obvious solutions at the moment. So in those areas, I mean, I'm sure the government doesn't want to reduce economic output in those sectors. You know, we want to grow our economy and keep those sectors thriving. So we're really going to have to look for either new technology, which we don't yet have a clear vision through to, or start looking at use of offsets or things like, you know, reforestation and, and Lulu CF to make up some of that difference. So we're still going to have an emission profile in 2050. And that's why everyone talks about net zero emissions rather than absolute zero emissions. In some sectors, yeah. there's just no obvious choice. No, I think that's a really good point. No one said zero emissions. It's all, and if, everyone's talking about net zero. And um, so the question is, um, how can we offset that carbon? I mean, we're all very hopeful about soil carbon because, I mean, there, there are potentially flow-on benefits um, in soil fertility and soil management in the agricultural sector. You know, growing trees or vegetation, as we talked about before, that's, that's clearly the area you can do it. But um, at some point, there might be a limit what you can do there. The, the, the more land you tie up doing that, the less land you've got for other things. Now, we've got a lot of land in Australia, so I guess we've, we, we could do a fair bit of that. But, you know, it, it almost, it does make me wonder, and I know it's a, there's a lot of scepticism about uh, carbon capture and storage, but I wonder if there's still a role for uh, carbon capture and storage um, in, the, in the long-term process. You know, the, I think you and I did some work on it a few years ago and we thought it was pretty expensive. I think the costs are coming down. There's still a lot of doubt in people's minds about the long-term credibility of, of holding carbon in caverns or salt, salt aquifers or whatever. Um, the, the alternative, of course, is to convert it to some sort of hard, hard, hard material where it is actually captured and then potentially use as a building product or as a road product. But again, this stage, I think that's, that's pretty expensive. But, I mean, what, what do you think about the, the role of carbon capture and storage, and more importantly, what happens if we just rule it out today and just ignore it? Yeah, look, I, I think you're right. There is a, there is a fair degree of scepticism around about carbon capture and storage, CCS. Some people have concerns around the integrity of reservoirs and whether it can hold that CO2 for you know, hundreds of years, which is essentially what we would be requiring it to do. First and foremost, I mean, I think technically... It's been proven to be doable. Uh, the oil and gas sector has been doing it for uh, many, many years in terms uh, yeah, of but, enhanced oil recovery. But they've been injecting it back into um, oil reservoirs to drive out the remnant oil. They haven't necessarily been relying on the carbon dioxide to stay within the reservoir. No, that's true. That's true. Yeah. And ultimately, it probably does get produced as they produce some of the tail gas out of those reservoirs. Mm. And, and, and at, at the moment, they're probably venting that to the atmosphere. Look, yeah, you're right. I mean, it's been something that's been looked at for a long time. Um, probably it, it may have a role to play in, in abating some of those hard-to-abate sectors. I think it would be foolish of us to rule it out completely at this point. Mm. You know, to the extent that we keep 
uh, investigating the potential for it, uh, keep looking at pilot projects and the like, basically keeping that option open for Australia so that if in, in, in time we do need to call upon something like that, then you know, we've got it available and we've done some of the groundwork um, so that we can bring that on relatively quickly if we need to. Yeah, yeah. I, um, you know, last, last month we had our colleague David Campbell on and he was talking about planning in the environment of uncertainty. And at that, that, that time we were talking about the recent submarine decision and, and all the uncertainty around the future of defence and defence options. But it seems to me that we really should be taking the same approach to dealing with global warming, climate change. And in that sense, if carbon capture and storage is actually a option, even though we might not think it's a great option right now, if we keep it on the table, it's still an option and it might become a valuable option in the future. And until we're sure it's not a valuable option, we should keep it going. I suppose that's the way that that I've been thinking about it. Yeah, yeah, look, I'd agree with you. I think, I mean, there are those that are dead set against the concept of carbon capture and storage simply because it involves, you know, potentially the continued use of fossil fuels. And, and, you know, there are some renewable advocates in particular might be dead set against it. But having, having said all that, I agree with you. I think keeping the option on the table on the table makes sense. And, you know, over time we'll have more information and maybe it won't play a role. But I think, as I say, ruling it out at this point and not continuing it as an option is, is probably not ideal. So turning to the government's modelling, I mean, it was a pretty interesting read, wasn't it? Because basically the government modelling, and I'm not saying the government did the modelling, but the, the modelling that was commissioned by the government came to the conclusion that we should do all these things, basically constrain the economy in all sorts of, sorts of ways, add, add additional costs, but as a consequence, we're all going to be better off. I mean, that, that, that sounds a little bit odd to me. I mean, what, what do you think of that sort of, sort of conclusion? Yeah, it, it did fly in the face of previous modelling exercises over the, over the last couple of decades when we've, when we've looked at the economics of climate change and emissions abatement. I mean... As you well know, Paul, you know, sort of any economic system, if you impose a constraint over the top, you know, by definition, you're forcing suboptimal decisions and higher cost decisions, and that's going to have an economic impact and, you know, implications for employment and, and um, gross national income. So, the, yeah, the modelling that was done to support the government's plan, I guess there, there was a couple of benefits that arose out of that modelling. The first was, in essence, uh, avoiding any sort of international retaliation if we, if we chose not to take any action on climate change beyond 2030. And, and that, that's, I think that's a realistic threat, that if we don't actually are not seen to be part of the club and are not seen to be doing our bit, that particularly the um, developed world is going to look pretty askance at us and, and potentially punish us with either tariffs or some other sort of quotas or, or, or trade limitations. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And it could just be as simple as, you know, whether it's trade restrictions, whether it's risk premiums for financing or, or, or whether it's just, you know, reduced demand for Australian goods simply because our reputation has been tarnished. Uh, I, think, I think few would uh, disagree that, you know, there's that, that benefit doesn't exist. I mean, you can, you can sort of debate how, how big that benefit potentially is. But I think that's, that, that's one of the obvious benefits in Australia, adopting a, a zero emission 
2050 target in line with a lot of other developed nations. The other key benefit that the modeling came up with, and by far the, the much larger component, was the economic benefit arising from investment in R&D. So the government set out a whole range of low emission technology targets that it's seeking to achieve, you know, such as clean hydrogen, you know, below $2 a kilo, super low cost solar PV, sub $15 a megawatt hour, and, and some other low emission materials, you know, low cost steel, aluminium, and soil carbon. There was some, a range of targets there. And they're looking at putting some serious money into, into R&D in these sectors, um, something in the order of 21 billion between now and 2030. So a lot of the benefit that the modeling came up with uh, at the end of it all is actually due to success in some of those sectors ar arising from you know, breakthroughs in technology and Australia's ability to participate in, in export markets for some of those low, low emission materials and, and, and energy. So, you know, in my mind, you know, if those R&D programs look like they would deliver benefits for Australia, you know, there's something that should be committed to regardless of whether or not Australia sets a target. And in fact, some of those commitments were actually made prior to us announcing our 2050 target through you know, some arena programs. So, you know, I would argue that the benefits that accrue from those probably should be in the baseline or in the no action scenario anyway. Yeah, so, so, in, so in a nutshell, what is it about announcing that we're doing a net uh, zero target in 2050 that allows us to make the investment that otherwise it would prevent us from making that investment? Yeah, precisely. And, uh, and so, so, I mean, the government could claim by making this investment, they're making us all better off by a certain amount of dollars in 2050. But to actually suggest that it's got something to do with the decision to go to net zero is probably just a little bit silly, wouldn't you say? Yeah, it's a little bit misleading, I would say. I, would mm. say. Um, I mean, previous exercises have shown that, you know, achieving certain levels of abatement cuts have all come at economic cost and cost of jobs. You know, when you're, when you're forcing businesses, or even if you're not forcing them, even if you're voluntarily taking up higher cost options than they would otherwise do, you know, businesses will have less money to invest. Households will have less discretionary income. And so that's going to have an economic uh, consequence. Yeah, I mean, I mean, putting it in context, of course. I mean, we're talking um, twenty fifty, and um, you know, I know, while I know that real incomes have suffered a bit, haven't grown as fast as we would have liked in recent times. If you look at the long history of um, real income growth by twenty fifty, even from today, you know, you'd expect um, people on average in Australia to be between one and a half to two times uh, better or, or better off, or or. or or at least uh, have one and a half to two times real income of today. So we are talking about the, the, the relative income in 2050, not of how people are today. So even if you did have like a 1% or 2% reduction in real incomes in, in 2050 against the baseline, we're still talking about higher incomes than today. So, that, so I think in some ways it's really about being truthful. We're not saying people are going to be devastated it's just they're going to be a little bit less well off than they otherwise would have been in 2050. Yeah, that's that, that's right. That's a fair summary. Yeah. Um, the other thing that strikes me too is these these modelling exercises, and I suppose you and I know, having done many modelling exercises ourselves, they suffer from averaging. 
And so you look at, I think, the government's conclusion of $2,000 a, a person being better off, and, but they don't actually think about necessarily about the distributional effects. And I, I think we can be fairly sure that, particularly if we look at how the history of some of these policies have gone, that the benefits are skewed towards the wealthy end of the spectrum and the costs tend to be skewed towards the uh, less wealthy and disadvantaged um, end of the spectrum. And, and a good example is solar. Uh, rooftop solar. Rooftop solar has been taken up in swathes by the wealthy end of uh, society. They're saving, um, they're getting big subsidies, they're saving costs in doing so. And the remnant costs of the electricity system are then thrown back on the remaining customers that are disproportionately uh, high, low income and disadvantaged members of society. So I just think using those averages is sometimes a little, also a little bit misleading. Yeah, that's right. I mean, policy, big policy changes like this always creates winners and losers. And, and you know, the gains aren't shared equally amongst everyone, of course. Mm. And, um, and, and that's why this area politically has been so contentious. You know, why we've had those climate wars and, and gone through, you know, a number of prime ministers, uh, <laughs> you know, on this exact issue. It does create that, that winners and losers you know, older industries, you know, fossil fuel industry, obviously, you know, in the firing line. Uh, and then you've got new emerging industries, which are the key beneficiaries. And so it's no, no surprise that you have um, divergence of views uh, on, on topics like this and Australia's response to it. Yeah, I mean, one of our colleagues used to say to me that uh, when we did these welfare um, exercises, we used to sit down and work out, um, you know, that there'd be a net better off outcome, but we never worked out who the losers were and, and actually tried to compensate them a bit. So, so I think maybe there is a role there um, for governments to really think that through and think about uh, where some of the losers are and make sure that through the welfare system that we do, do provide some level of compensation. And that, that, that might be even targeting better targeted campaigns to people to make sure they can actually adapt to some of the things and maybe give less, less, less help to uh, the more wealthy end of the spectrum. Yeah, yeah, no, you're quite right. Look, uh, just before we finish up, I, th- I think uh, it'd be worth maybe just having a bit of a chat about uh, hydrogen. I mean, it's, I look around the Australia, it seems like um, every state government now has one or two world-leading um, export hydrogen industries planned. There's uh, a lot of discussion about whether or not we should be using hydrogen displace fuel in the electricity sector um, and also whether we can actually displace um, the use of natural gas with uh, reticulated hydrogen and yet the last time I looked at hydrogen it I think it's you know if you look at the production costs it's around 50 to 60 dollars a kilogram which uh, sorry uh, five to six dollars a kilogram which is works out at what 50 or 60 dollars a gigajoule compared to probably ten dollars a gigajoule for for natural gas and $25 to $30 a gigajoule for, for diesel. There needs to be a fair bit of work on the technology, I would think, to get us to a point where hydrogen would make a lot of, lot of sense. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it, it certainly is gaining a lot of attention, um, both at the state level, at federal level, internationally. Um, and, and in some ways, you can understand that attention because it is, on the face of it, quite simple. It's the most abundant element on Earth, uh, it's readily available in, in water, H2O. But as you say, the key trick is extracting that hydrogen from that water molecule uh, cost-effectively. 
I mean, the good thing about hydrogen is that, you know, you can burn it as a gas and it doesn't emit any CO2 or you can use it in a fuel cell. Uh, so it has a wide range of applications. It can also be used as uh, input into fertilizer manufacturing. So very versatile. And, and it's probably, you know, in, in, in my view, looks to have a key role in some of those critical hard to abate sectors like steel, long distance transport, where electrification kind of doesn't work or isn't practical. So the key thing, I mean, there's a couple of ways you can make hydrogen, of course. You can, you can make it through electrolysis. And if you power that with you know, low or zero emission electricity, renewable electricity, you get so-called green hydrogen. Um, but you can also get hydrogen from fossil fuels through gasification of coal or from steam, methane reforming of natural gas. Uh, but there, course, are, but there, are, there are carbon dioxide emissions. So yeah, yeah, that's right. So if you, do, if you go down that road, um, you've got a CO2 problem you then need to deal with in order to... I mean, obviously make... less CO2 than if you're just burning the gas, but in terms of the energy content you get from it, yeah. Correct, correct. But still a problem that would, you know, that CO2 would need to be sequestered. So there's the cost of production that, that's an issue and, and key input there is electricity around green hydrogen. I mean, one of the factors which is often missed, I think, is that, you know, whilst we might be able to get down to $15 a megawatt hour solar as per the government stretch target, but solar, the capacity factor of solar is only around 20%. So if, you, if you're building electrolysis, you know, you need to increase the utilisation of them in order to get those costs down. So if you're only running an electrolyzer at 20% of the time, the cost of that hydrogen is going to be quite high. Well, you could always put some storage, you know, into uh, store the uh, solar, but that's got a cost too. Yeah, ex exactly. So then you're, uh, you know, you're looking at, you know, trying to get costs down for an electricity system that has zero emission electricity for something like 80% of the time, which is a different equation to just focusing on the cost of renewables. And the problem with solar is, is that um, it's highly correlated. Um, you, you, unlike wind, where you get a lot of diversity, solar, um, you know, when, it's, when the sun's up in Queensland, it's pretty much up in Victoria and South Australia as well. Yeah, that's right. So we did some work around, you know, correlation of wind and solar and and, and look, you might be able to get up to something like 60% using a diverse mix of wind and solar around the country. But, you know, it comes down to the cost. But there's also other challenges with hydrogen as well. So, you know, transport of hydrogen around. So typically you transport it via pipelines and, you know, high tensile steel suffers, suffers from embrittlement problems with hydrogen. So, uh, you know, so there's some technical challenges there. Storage of hydrogen. It's a very low density gas in terms of its energy density. So storage is very, very expensive. So you need three to four times the volume that you need for natural gas. So whilst, you know, it's, you know, an area that has a lot of potential, but there's a, a whole range of technological and cost breakthroughs, which I think we need to get through before, you know, it'll find its place. You know, there's a lot of activity going on at the moment around the country through electrolyzer trials, through you know trialing injection into the gas networks and things like that, but uh, you know and we can incorporate an amount of hydrogen within our natural gas networks currently, um, you know maybe up to ten percent, a little bit higher at times. That'd be a interesting transition, but I mean ultimately if you, you know there's quite a lot of gas that goes through our gas networks, and if you want to remove that carbon dioxide, you are going to have to effectively fully fully replace it or do a lot of offsets. 
Um, but I mean, it, it sounds to me though like hydrogen sort of in some ways, um, and I know some people wouldn't want me to characterise this way, but it's a bit like carbon capture and storage. It's a potential option for the future. Probably, probably one that's got a little, little bit more upside at this stage than um, carbon capture and storage. It's a potential option for the future. We're not sure how it's going to work out, but we certainly shouldn't be ruling it out or, or taking it off the table at this point. No, no. And in fact, quite the contrary. I mean, I think we're, we're <clears> leading the charge in terms of hydrogen and uh, the early development of it because Australia, you know, sees a large potential for hydrogen as a, as a new export industry. You know, so countries like Japan and Korea, which are currently very reliant on our fossil fuel energy exports, you know, they too need to decarbonise. And hydrogen is seen to be a way in which they can do it because they're not as endowed with, you know, the sun and, and land resources that we are. So they can't roll out, you know, large swathes of renewable capacity like we can. Laying solar panels around the, on the sea around Japan is probably not going to be that effective, is it? No, 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 that's right. So hydrogen, you know, has, has huge potential there as an export industry for us. And so Australian government's very... You know, cognizant that we, we, we need to be on the front foot there in terms of the technology. And, and if, uh, you know, an export industry does emerge, you know, we need to be front and centre. So, so while we're talking about uh, ruling in and out options or, or not ruling out options, what about nuclear for Australia? I mean, obviously, nuclear doesn't have greenhouse gas emissions, although there, there's some significant greenhouse gas emissions currently in the manufacture of a, a nuclear power station, all the steel and other things, concrete that's, that's involved in it. But, but thinking about nuclear as an option, I mean, what's your thought on that? And particularly in the Australian context. Yeah, look, if, I mean, I mean, I was asked this question, you know, sort of 15 years ago, and, and nuclear at that point was an obvious choice for Australia, you know, zero emission technology, dispatchable, you know, has all those good characteristics that um, overcome some of the shortfalls with, with renewables. Um, but that was at a time when the cost of renewables was so high. Since then, you know, renewables, the cost declines have been, you know, beyond just about what anyone was projecting. Um, and now we're, we're at a point now where cost of nuclear, you know, even setting aside, you know, other concerns around nuclear, the cost of nuclear is just simply more expensive, based on based on our numbers, uh, than renewable energy with storage added on top. So that you know the successes we've had in, in cost reductions in renewables really has pushed nuclear out. Uh, I think of the conversation for Australia. Yeah, and I mean, and that's not even taking into account the potential geopolitical implications if we started to develop a. A, a nuclear industry here, and not not even suggesting that we would uh, be thinking about weapons grade uh, nuclear material, but just the fact that we would start processing or even holding nuclear material in Australia would would have some very significant geopolitical um, considerations. I would, and I think uh, if you go back to the uh, Swatowski review on this, um, I think he highlighted, and I, I, th- I thought it was a very a very a good review, um, that you know it would probably take 10, 15 years just to develop the regulatory system. And get the trained people um, up to to uh, to be able to actually even start thinking about having a, a nuclear industry. And so, from a from a real options point of view, it's um, it, it's it's obviously it's not very attractive from my point of view. And I think, as you point out, it, it's it's been overtaken by other technologies, certainly in Australia anyway. It has, it has. Yeah, I think 
I think its time has, has passed, certainly for Australia. Still has a role to play, you know, a lot of other countries around the world where nuclear plays a, a fundamental role in power systems. But um, I think for Australia, I think, um, I think we've moved on. Yeah, the other, the other thing people often talk about, they see, that, see it as a, an interesting uh, technology, is they, they think about it as being firm power. But what I think one of the things that people don't maybe think about so much, it may be firm baseload power, but it doesn't necessarily provide very good dispatchability because you, you can't ramp a nuclear power station up and down through the peak of the day very easily. So in that sense, it's it's probably not much of a solution anyway. You know, we really need very flexible, responsive, dispatchable power, pumped hydro, gas turbines, batteries. That's the sort of thing that we really need uh, for the future. Yeah, so I agree. That, in, in, the, last, the last thing we need is another inflexible baseload technology in our system. Exactly. <laughs> Exactly. Look, that's been great, Owen. Um, thanks, uh, thanks for joining us today. We really appreciated it. For our listeners, uh, we'll be taking a break over the holiday period, but we'll be back with a new episode early in the new year. Uh, we are looking forward to you tuning in then for another insider take on what's happening in the headlines. Or, In the meantime, you can visit uh, acelallen.com.au for more in-depth articles and insight. Thank you. Thank you.